listening to episode two of My Name is My Name. On this episode, I'll be talking with Daniel Colucciello Barber about his recent work on conversion and a little bit about his past work on Deleuze and the post-secular. Thanks for joining me here on our second episode of My Name is My Name with APS. Uh, as I mentioned at the start of the show, we're going to be talking with Daniel Coluciello Barber today about his new work, his past work, what got him into intellectual work, um, how he's enjoying Berlin, and uh, we'll t- also talk a little bit about some current trends that are popular in continental philosophy right now, like uh, accelerationism, questions that critical race theory raises, queer theory raises, and the like. For those who don't know Dan's work, I would really recommend his book On Diaspora, Christianity, Religion, and Secularity, published by Cascade Books. Uh, I'll actually be teaching a summer course where we're just going to focus on this book, read some of the sources that Dan pulls on. I think it's a really fantastic work of theory that brings together philosophy, Uh, religious studies, theology, cultural studies, uh, all of that sort of stuff into one coherent piece of theoretical work. We also just got news that his second book, Deleuze and the Naming of God, is going to be published as a paperback by Edinburgh University Press in January. There'll be links on the Tumblr site to these books, so go check them out. Uh, I'll also put up some links to some of his open access articles. If there's anything about the conversation you want to pick up on, please use the comments on the Tumblr site. My name is mynamepod.tumblr.com. And again, I'm always open to recommendations for conversation partners, as well as books to be talked about in book review episodes. So without further ado, uh, here's my conversation with Daniel Colucciello Barber. How you doing, Dan? I'm doing all right. How about yourself? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Um, it's it's very gray and cloudy here, but I kind of like that, so it's it's fine. Um, so you're you're in Germany right now, right? I am. Yeah, I'm in Berlin. Okay, and and you're uh, you're at the Institute for Contemporary Inquiry. <laughs> Institute for Cultural Inquiry. Cultural. I, I get this wrong every single time. I know that. I, sometimes it's one of the eyes. Sometimes it's a C. But yeah. All right. Um, so, uh, what what are, what are you doing there right now? 
Uh, well, I'm working on a working on a book project on the idea of conversion. Uh, that's that's the research I'm doing here. I'm being funded for that, and um, and you know we have like a symposia, a colloquia, I guess we call it, um, where we meet with other fellows here. But uh, so we have that kind of uh, collective project going on, and we do some things going out of that, but. I mean, mainly I have a lot of time to work on uh, what I'm doing. That's cool. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about your, your new project in, in just a little bit. But um, um, So you're, you're on a postdoc there. Where were you coming from before you, you came to the ICI? Uh, before I was at the ICI, I was doing a lot of adjunct gigs, a lot of precarious teaching work at various places in New York. Um, NYU, Marymount Manhattan College, and uh, CUNY LaGuardia. Okay, okay. So um, I'm, I'm guessing you don't really miss the adjunct game. <laughs> I I miss the teaching, um, but um, I don't uh, I don't miss the how should we put it the time to work ratio that's involved in the position of being an adjunct. No, I don't miss that. Right, right. Um, okay, and so. So before that, you you did your PhD at Duke University. Um, now you were in the religion program, right? I was, yeah. I was in. Uh, I was properly enrolled in the religion department. That's where I did my. Um, you know, that's where my degree is from. Although I worked pretty heavily in the uh, program in literature there. Okay, so um, I, I think I think we talked about this a little bit before, but. Uh, I'm curious. How, how do you kind of define yourself uh, as uh, intellectual? Do you do you do you like these labels? Um, if if you have to have a label, what kind of label do you put on yourself? Well, I guess um, I don't really think that I have the I don't have the option of not having a label, and I don't like that. Uh, but um, having said that, I kind of drag my feet. I don't know. I don't think too much about my labels. I. Um, uh, which I don't see as some kind of uh, beautiful soul protest or something, but um, my work is kind of takes me into places that that by way of disciplines are divided. Uh, so I I work on material that falls under philosophy. I work under material that falls under religious studies. Um, I mean, as well, you could talk about. Um, uh, Critical race theory, queer theory, uh, even sociology, anthropology, etc., etc., etc. I mean, so I'm kind of um, <clears throat> promiscuous in that way. But I mean, I, I suppose, uh, you know, I mean, if I apply for jobs, generally my best uh, way of positioning myself is in religious studies. Um, so that's what I, uh, I guess you could say I'm a scholar of religious studies. Uh. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, if we could, if we could talk a little bit about your time in graduate school, because um, I, I think Duke is sort of an interesting environment for someone who does the kind of work you do to come out of. Which I'm, I'm speaking kind of, you know, uh, uh, elliptically here, but Duke is not known for producing. Um, s scholars of religion who are coming f 
Duke's not use, not known for producing. Yeah, keep going, keep going. <laughs> right. Uh, so so Duke Duke uh, is really known for its div school and the kind of confessional theologies that come out of there. So I'm curious, how did you um, how did you do the work uh, that you wanted to do there? Like, wh- who did you work with? Um, uh, what kind of conversations were you able to have there? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, well, it should be said, right? Of course, that there's there are people at Duke and PhDs produced by Duke that you know are kind of totally uh, separate from what we might think of as the Duke School of Theology. Um, however, uh, I did work with uh, people, at least some people, who were really very much involved in that Duke School of uh, Theology. Um, so there's that. Um, I have to think that I'm pretty atypical for that. Um, uh, I mean, I had one, uh, there's one faculty member who actually uh, quit my committee after the, um, after my, what do you call them, prelims or exams or whatever you, whatever you call yeah. them. Um, he, you know, he passed me an exam, said I did a really good job, but said that he couldn't be part of my project because it was too, I mean, shit, I don't know what, what he would call it, but it was too something or other. It was too not Duke. I don't know. Um, too not Bart, too not Aquinas. <laughs> yes, yes. Everybody Google. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I mean, so, I mean, but at the same time, if you look at someone like Hauerwas, I mean, he totally uh, defended me or didn't even feel the need to defend me in that regard. Um, I mean, I did work a lot with uh, Stanley and, um, and I found him uh, really helpful for that. He, um, I, always, I always say that he's like a point guard, uh, to use a basketball metaphor. Um, he, in a way that sort of undercuts some of the reputation that I think he has, but he's done a lot of work with lots of different people. I mean, if you look at, I mean, he's worked with Stanley Fish, with Roman Coles, all in pretty, um, you know, uh, engaged ways. Um, And I think, you know, he kind of treated me as such. Uh, So I never really had a problem working with him. Um, Not not really. I, I think one of the signs of a good teacher is when they produce really strong students who aren't just clones of themselves. And, and so I think you're, you're probably a, a really good example for Stanley Harawas as someone who's, who is a former student of his who's doing kind of your own thing. Um, what, what do you think you've taken from his work into your own work? What kind of uh, themes or ways of thinking? Um, or there, are there none? <laughs> uh well, you know, there are, there are more than I could probably think of at the moment, but I would say the two things that I always sort of uh, took from him, I'm saying two just to throw out a number, maybe there's one or seven, I don't know, but, uh, <laughs> but I mean, let me just say a couple things off the top of my head. Um, one of the things, and uh, Ken Cern always uh, pointed this out as well, was that, you know, I mean, there's a deep, I don't know what you say, Wittgenstein kind of element going on with Hauerwas, um, a, that, a sense that there are a plurality of forms of life. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, let's leave aside the whole McIntyrean tradition take on this, but that there are a multiplicity of forms of life and that the ways in which these forms of life speak have a significant degree of incommensurability with one another. Or that to understand these forms of life 
one can only um, experiment with them in a sustained way. Um, so, I mean, I always took his insistence on what we might call a Christian form of life, however one would want to define that, as, as part of a kind of pl pluralism. And, you know, going along with that, let's make this the second thing, um, which is that, uh, I don't know if this is quite the, the right metaphor, but, you know, you have to, you have to put your money where your mouth is, um, which mm. is, which is to say that you, uh, you have to experiment and part of experimentation is that you could lose, um, yeah. that what you're doing and what you're committed to the projects or the form of life or whatever that you're invested in or that you attach yourself to, or that you learn to name yourself in. I mean, this could be a disaster. This could be a catastrophe. It could ruin your life. Um, it could be, you know, create all kinds of difficulties, not of the good creative kind, but could be a dead end. Um, right. Now, obviously, if you realize that, you need to try something else, but it's not like you can realize that ahead of time. You cannot adjudicate these things ahead of time. So, right. I mean, I think, you know, there are some people who, um, you know, who have read him in a kind of Hegelian vein, which I think is absolutely not, not, uh, not a correct way to do it. You know, there's the claim that somehow the the ecclesia or the church or whatever for Hauerwas is somehow a concrete universal, the instantiation of the universal. Whereas on the contrary, I always took Hauerwas as someone who was, uh, if you're talking about a concrete or a particular form of life, it's one that's distinct and potentially untranslatable with other forms of life. And, and that's a risk you could lose in that. Um, I don't know. So I always appreciated that aspect. And I think it's because of that aspect that he appreciated the chance to collaborate or to have encounters with people who maybe weren't um, on the same trajectory that he was because he was always experimenting, always uh, giving it a try. Now, of course, that's, that's, a, that's a very different than the pious Hauerwas, the hagiography of Hauerwas, um, but for what it's worth. Well, I think it's more interesting than the hagiography, if I'm, if I'm going to be honest. Uh, so it's, it's kind of nice to hear that because for me, that hagiography has kind of ruined my experience of reading Harawas um, and then trying to engage with them because I can't I can't block those things out. So this is this is interesting to hear. Now, um, what what actually took you to Duke though? So you know we the way we become the people we are in our late twenties and early thirties <laughs> goes back to like yeah, this undergrad experience. Please um, put me in so the what, early thirties. What made you want to go to grad school and why did you choose Duke? Uh, I mean, very simple. Um, I was reading a lot of stuff uh, in philosophy and also, I guess, in areas of religion. And uh, I mean, I was reading in philosophy, but it became really clear to me that philosophy, um, how to put it, uh, philosophy, you know, philosophy, there's certain things somehow, it's, it's exterioritys or it's experimentalities. It, Philosophy as a discourse or as a discipline often tends to um, uh, sort of create prophylactics or immunize itself against that. Um, so I kind of got into questions of religion because I felt like um, a lot of the questions of, of a life or how does one live or, you know, things like uh, the social, the political uh, and so on, um, somehow in... in in philosophy, it was always a theory of X or a theory of Y. 
and um, but it wasn't somehow an engagement or a potential uh, experiment with these things. So I, I, I took my concern to be philosophical, but also marked by religion in these ways. And but anyway, I was reading all that stuff, and I just wanted to keep doing more of it. I just I just didn't want to uh, I didn't want to stop. Um, and so I figured I'd go to grad school, and you know I had this uh, connect with uh, Richard Hayes, who was a professor at. Um, Duke. He's now, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm correct, I'm not quite up on my uh, data for the Duke <laughs> school. But I think at the, I think at the Duke school, he's the dean now. I could be wrong about okay. that. But, um, but at the time, he was a professor and he was doing some stuff on ethics. And I had the uh, chance or fortune or whatever to uh, be involved in a summer seminar that he was leading. I met him. I, I guess I did well enough that he felt that he could advocate for me, and he talked to me about Duke, and, you know, that was kind of uh, my way of getting into a master's program there. And, um, but, uh, you know, I went to graduate school, though I had, like, a very utopian idea of it. Like, I would go there, and... I mean, here's the thing. It's like, there was a, there was a time when I thought that all of these questions were, like, like, if I had questions and I was like, all right, this is a problem. This is a problem, that's a problem, whatever. It's like somehow, like, uh, other people knew, I don't, know if, I don't know if I'd say the answers, but other people could sort of help me get out of where I was at. And so I had this idea, I would go to grad school and I would be at Duke and I would be surrounded. I mean, not like we're sitting around like a fucking campfire or whatever, <laughs> but somehow there'd be a lot of people who I'd be like, ask these questions, like, okay, I hear you. I don't necessarily have the answers, but here's what you need to do. And this is, gets you out of the deadlock you're in, you know? Right. But, uh, you know, but basically everybody just went out to dinner. <laughs> uh, everybody just like, you know, they went to the seminar and then maybe afterwards they talk a little bit and then they're like, all right, uh, let's go to dinner. And then they go to dinner and, you know, I don't know what. But, I mean, I, so I had this idea that somehow it would be like this really intensive discussion. And then I realized, no, they're just going out to dinner and talking a little bit. And I just need to, uh, you know, find my own way. Just do your own thing. Um, you know, don't, don't try and, you know, take what you can, steal what you can, learn what you can. Uh, but do your own thing. So you're not really buying, like, the community of... Uh, uh intellectual inquiry that graduate school is often sold as to people. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, generally communities are big problems, I think. Uh, but, uh, including, can you say more about that? <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> Cause that's a big yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I mean, communities. Yeah. I should probably stop here, but let's just say that tends communities tend not to be about, the enactment of, a, of uh, the promise of community and oftentimes more about the enactment of, uh, you know... Going to dinner? Going to dinner, yeah. Eating. Uh, it's like the Eucharist. While or other something. people aren't eating? Is that kind of what you mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, listen, communities are great, but um, I just mean that sometimes communities are sort of like uh, things that people believe in more than things that people enact. Um, uh, at least when they're spoken of. Um, but, um, you know, the thing is, like with Hauerwas, the other thing I was going to say, as I definitely changed the subject, uh, is, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, one of the things that I really liked about him, and but it, it makes me think of it because it's not so community, right, is that, like, 
you know, he, I was, I don't know what it was, I was sitting somewhere and then suddenly there was Hauerwas and there was, was some kind of person who was there to see Hauerwas, because that's what, there's people doing that, and, um, and Hauerwas introduced me as, or him, or I don't know how it was, but he, def in introducing this guy to all of us, he defined my relationship, he said, Hauerwas said, you know, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm Dan's excuse for doing a PhD in religion here. And I really liked that, you know, he kind of just did a lot of independent studies with me and helped me kind of uh, just do my own thing vis-a-vis um, uh, -vis course plans and things like that. Right, yeah. right. Cool. Well, you know, we've, we've known each other now for something like oh, 12 years, um, maybe longer. I think, I think we met each other back in like 2001 via – the internet, um, which always sounds like it was on OkCupid or something, but uh, <laughs> it was it was uh, the web Grindr, blog, baby. which was the earlier incarnation <laughs> of Amin for Sick, um, the blog that uh, Adam Kotzka really started. Um, and at that time, you know, you and I started talking a lot because uh, we were both really interested in Deleuze, and Deleuze plays a pretty major role in your PhD thesis, which just came out as a book with Edinburgh University Press, um, The Naming of God, Deleuze and the Naming of God. Um, so when you, were, when you were working at Duke on, on Deleuze, what really attracted you to, to his, his ideas at that time? Um, yeah, I mean, I think what attracted me to Deleuze's ideas was basically... Um, uh, I mean, there's a million ways to put it, but it was the ethics, really. That there was an ethics in Deleuze that seemed adequate to... Um, not adequate to, but let's just say um, outside of theodicy. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah, was that surprising? Huh? That's a very, like, uh, old-school kind of thing. But, I mean, theodicy in the sense that... Um, uh, that you know, theodicy meaning that everything needs to be get gets narrated through some notion of justice and the relationship between justice and events. Um, so, but by a by a theodicy here, by a theodicy here, I mean obviously God, but I mean it doesn't necessarily have to be God as the figure of theodicy. There could be other ones, but um, uh, but the idea is somehow that there's justice. Um, and then there's events, and that therefore you can have some kind of evaluation of one in terms of the other, um, uh, as as distinct concepts, dialectically or analogically related or whatever. But the idea that somehow events are just or not, that events are right or wrong, and this to me seemed like not a way to live. Um, mm -hmm. Because it, it seemed um, always to make one's relation to events, if I can put it that way, one's relations to events in terms of achieving justice or failing to achieve justice. Whereas for Deleuze, you know, I mean, I think probably, uh, you know, the the most important line for me, I think, would be, um, would be uh, this line from The Logic of Sense, where he says, uh, and I may be misquoting here, but um, 
ethics, if it means anything at all, means becoming worthy of what happens to us. Mm-hmm. Something like that. And, um, you know, I mean, if you think of ethics in terms of becoming worthy of what happens to you, as opposed to ethics being mediated through the question of are events just or not, or how do we bring about just events or not? I mean, that's a totally different framework. It gives you a totally different relation to suffering, to pain, to all kinds of things. And it's about strength, and it's about power. Not, not power over, but power of, of, you know, becoming worthy of the events that happen to you, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, this, um, there, there is a Deleuze that's become sort of like a, a, a brand, um, an industry. Um, do, how do you relate yourself to, to this sort of vision of Deleuze that, you know, is characterized by people like Zizek as a kind of pagan affirmationist, um, or gets characterized by even his, um, those, Kind of writing on brand, um, trying to 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 couch themselves as Deleuzians, um, and in that way being very affirming of everything. Um, how do you see your own work relating to that to that figure of Deleuze? Um, well, I mean, I think I think what we're right, what we're talking about is it's um, you know there's a kind of couple form there's a kind of couple form going on here between Zizek. Badu, uh, Hallward, mm-hmm. and you know and that kind of thing, where they critique Deleuze mm-hmm. um, for, let's say, if I can be a little bit stupid and blunt about it, for being too happy, for being too positive and affirmative, right. or something. Um, and then on the other hand, I say this is a, a, a couple because um, on the other on the other side of the couple, on the one hand, you have Zizek and so on, and on the other hand, the other side of the couple you've got um people who are saying like yeah Deleuze is affirmative Deleuze means yes you know like I'm sitting here at my computer and I'm drinking organic coffee from somewhere and I'm talking to someone another thing and it's like a fucking assemblage you know um and check out all my becomings you know and um I mean so in a way as long as as long as Deleuze is that kind of happy affirmative Deleuze then on some level you're always going to need the Zizek, Badu, Hallward kind of thing that says, oh, well, you know, Deleuze is a dead end because he's too happy, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so in that sense, I would, my relation, my reading of Deleuze, my, my practice of reading Deleuze is about a sad Deleuze. Um, it, it, I mean, if I, if I were to sort of mediate myself into that, I would say this whole kind of, you know, we're, lo- we're you know, Take the, what's the Yogi Bear line? Like, if you see a fork in the road, take it. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's a fork in the road. Down one road, down one road, you can go Zizek and criticize Deleuze for being happy. Or down the other road, you could be an affirmative Deleuzean who's just about flows and that kind of thing. Well, just, I mean, both of those roads are like, let's just not go down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in that sense, I would say that Deleuze is sad. Um, I mean, I don't want to overdetermine it that way, but yeah, I mean, Deleuze is, yeah. I mean, I mean, I can say a million things about this. I don't. I mean, maybe you have other. Uh, I, I, actually, yeah. I was going to bring this up because I that the the phrase "a sad Deleuze" kind of stuck out to me from the audio of your your Liverpool talk um, yeah. that you recently did. 
Um, and I, I was kind of curious if, if you could ex- expand on what a sad Deleuze would look like. How is that distinctive from the other readings of Deleuze that are out there? Well, I mean, I mean, let's put it this way. Like I was, uh, I was, I was talking to a friend the other day who was just sort of, um, reading, you know, uh, you know how people always say reading it. I was rereading. Nobody ever commits to reading something right. for the first time. Right. So my friend said, uh, "My friend says, oh, I'm rereading the <laughs> postscript on societies of control or whatever." Um, so I'm rereading postscript on society of control, and it's amazing because the stuff he's talking about in that essay, you know, this is an essay that's at least what 20 years old. Yeah, plus, it's not more. 20 yeah. plus years. Yeah, yeah, at least 20 years old, more than 20 years old. He's talking about, uh, you know, we're headed for a time of lifetime education, uh, people doing continuous forms of labor, running from one. In other words, what is kind of obvious now, Deleuze is talking about then. Um, and, you know, I, I think sometimes what these happy, this reading of happy Deleuze, whether you like it, whether you're for or against the happy Deleuze, I, I don't think it really gives too much credit to the fact that there's, to me, there's a real shift in Deleuze's uh, writing um, uh, because, you know, what we see in the Societies of Control piece, um, it, you know, he was aware of that and he was trying to adjust what he was saying to that kind of political predicament uh, to, you know, as he put it, um, you know, communication is a problem. Uh, now, let me just sort of say, I, I don't want to try and get into some heavy-handed periodization of Deleuze or something like this. Uh-huh. Like this um, uh, but, but, I, but I do think you can see a kind of turn or trajectory on some level. So if you consider, for instance, I mean, there's a few things to keep in mind, um, but certainly in what is philosophy is a polemic against, against communication, right? It's a polemic against communication. And, you know, I mean... I think we can understand that to mean a polemic against capitalism, precisely capitalism understood as communicative capitalism or post-Fordist capitalism or immaterial labor, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Now, what's also very interesting is in some uh, interviews of this time, I'm thinking of one um, that he does with uh, Tony Negri. Um, I don't know the exact date, but it's around this time. It's collected in the negotiations volume. You know, Negri is sort of, advancing something like a happy Deleuzean position. Uh, Negri says, like, okay, listen, um, once upon a time, uh, communism was merely a utopia, like it couldn't be actualized. But now that capitalism is developed to communicative capitalism, do we not have um, the apparatus or the machines, you know, through the reading of the Grundriss and so on, do we not have the machines available to make this not a utopia, to, but to make this realizing? Um, isn't, in other words, communicative capitalism, um, you know, a means or a mediation or whatever of some kind of liberative post-capitalist or anti-capitalist movement? And Deleuze is very clear. He says, no. He says, you know, if you want to talk about um, becoming minoritarian, minoritarian speech, if you want to talk about creation... Well, all of that precisely is not communication. What we need, on the contrary, are vacuoles of non-communication. And that what you're calling communication is just a matter of control. 
and kind of, you know, we're fucked in certain ways. There's a line, mm-hmm. again, I'm, I'm uh, quoting from memory, but there's a line in the Societies of Control piece, I think it's there, maybe it's from, from one of these interviews, where he says um, something like, you know, we may look back on the age of discipline or what we might call Fordist modes of capitalism with a kind of nostalgia. I mean, right. so if, if anything, um, the political potentialities of communication are, uh, there's a kind of attitude of pessimism that Deleuze has towards that. Um, so when I talk about a sad Deleuze, it's, it's precisely to resist this idea somehow that, that Deleuze is a theory of the actual present of communication, assemblages, and so on, and so on, and so on. Um, I mean, there's other things that are related to this, but I mean, I think you see this trajectory going on. Yeah, so uh, is this sad, Deleuze? Do you think that this kind of reading comes out in your recent book, the Deleuze and the Naming of God? Or is it is that more in, in um, like, prior to this kind of thinking of your reading? Um, I mean, I, I, I claim this in my book. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is, I mean, this is what I try and do. I mean, particularly this is why the figure of Adorno right. is really interesting here. Um, you know, there's, there's some really intriguing shout outs to Adorno and what is philosophy. Uh, one is, one is where he sort of talks about utopia and in relation to the Frankfurt School, and he, at one point, um, he talks about, he says, you know, what I'm talking about here is sort of like Adorno's negative dialectic. And, you know, I make the argument, particularly in the last couple chapters, um, that, uh, you know, that there's, uh, that, I don't know, this is not a synthesis, it's just sort of saying that Adorno provides some tools from which we can um, under, understand or read Deleuze in this more, sad or pessimistic way yeah. um yeah 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 i mean uh um for people who haven't read your book yet um you you engage there with deleuze obviously but also Dorno, um this mennonite theologian named yoder uh who's been in the news recently for for questionable things um and then uh also milbank john milbank the the radical orthodox theologian and david bentley hart there right so it's not really just a book on deleuze it's it is advancing your own your own ideas um, using these figures. Is that accurate? You think? Uh, yeah, that's correct. I mean, I think it's okay. it's pretty much a constructive work. But I mean, there's a couple of things I'm, you know, uh, needing to work through some pro- problematics and and um, you know, I mean, basically there's three problematics. Let's say in the book, and the, the first one, constituting the first two chapters, is the problematic of difference and imminence and um, how these relate. So I talk about, uh, I have a chapter there, my second chapter there is on Deleuze, where I basically, in a chapter, try and say what Deleuze's philosophy is. I, I think, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I actually think in itself that's, um, uh, I feel really good about that chapter. Um, when I was doing research for this initially, I was looking around for, for engagements of Deleuze as a kind of constructive philosophical worker, post-Deleuzean philosophy, and and with a few exceptions, pretty much everything was, here's how Deleuze is different from this other guy. Or here's how Deleuze applies to whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, so I really tried to do that more constructive work myself. Um, I mean, I think Philip Goodchild should be mentioned here as a big exception to what I'm talking about, um, most notably. But, um, but I tried to relate to how the problematic of difference in relation to imminence and the question of time or change 
political change of something genuinely different is really can be tracked through Heidegger and Deleuze, I mean, excuse me, Heidegger and Derrida and Deleuze. So that's kind of one problematic. And then the second problematic, um, as you mentioned, this kind of theological problematic or this, um, uh, you know, this discussion of Milbank and these kinds of analogy of being people is, you know, there's an argument that they make that I think is very intriguing. Um, I mean, like, listen, I mean, these people are pretty reprehensible uh, <laughs> in, some of the, in some of the things that they've said. Um, if it, I mean, I'm not in confession, but if I were, I would like to disavow them. Um, when I first started writing this book, you know, there were, there were, I mean, they were, I, I looked at that and I thought, okay, this is a kind of socialist project, da da da, there's some huge problems. By the time mm -hmm. I finished, by the time this book is published, I mean, we have like quasi-fascist statements on record from people like right. Milbank. And so, I mean, that was a little bit... Um, disappointing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, disappointing. And, yeah, I'm disappointed. Uh, I'm disappointed. Yeah. Uh, but, um, I mean, I think it's... it's I mean, I actually think in a way that's symptomatic. But, um, I mean, here's the thing. Uh, when you talk about imminence, one of the big questions, I think, and it's, it's, it's a kind of naive question, but I think naive questions are oftentimes the best ones. It's a naive question, which is simply this. If, if there's just imminence, then how do you get something that would condition a substantive change? Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, if there's just imminence, then isn't that like the totality of a whole that cannot provide... Um, uh, the imagination or the construction of a future which would be different from what we have at present. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a very uh, important question to think about. And um, it's a question that someone like Milbank posed quite uh, forcefully vis-a-vis -vis the whole kind of post-structuralist um, trajectory, including Deleuze, Derrida, Heidegger, and so on. Um, and I, I give him credit for posing that question. Um, right. And he posed it... I mean, I'm going to say something in a second about Zizek and all this other stuff, but um, uh, Milbank posed this question by sort of saying, you need some kind of Christianity in order to provide the imagination of difference. Because the great thing about Christianity, according to Milbank, is that it gives you a transcendence that would always exceed what is given. But because this transcendence is also within the imminent, as he would put it, within the material, it's not just radically other. It's something that can be addressed and mediated from where we are. Now, I mean, apart from Milbank's own problems, I've got to say that I think that's, you know, I could see why someone sort of just showing up and looking at it would be like, ah, that's a good point. You know, so a lot of, um, so that sort of Christian framework or the analogy of being, um, I take that as a very helpful way of art, of uh, a contrast that helps us understand how uh, a politics of pure eminence or an ontology of pure eminence or an imagination of pure eminence in Deleuze, um, why Deleuze can do something different than that, why Deleuze is doing something that's of greater value than that. 
Now, I mean, and, and I want to say as an aside, you know, I mean, I think, um, I mean, let's just not look at the fact that, that um, Milbank is, is, and Milbank and company are doing a kind of uh, Christianized or Thomistic ontology or Platonico-Thomistic ontology um, and say, oh, that's Christian, come on. We're secular mm -hmm. modern. We don't need to... I mean, all right, let's think about two of the biggest critics of Deleuze being Zizek and Badu. Right. And I'm sorry, what is there... When Zizek and Badu want to give us a politics that would break from what the present is, what do they do? They turn to Paul, right? I mean, it's, right. it's Pauline... They're doing Pauline thought. Right. Um, so to me, I think that, um, you know... This is, is uh, Milbank is not really a, 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 he's symptomatic of something that is much larger than you would get if you just focus on, oh, that's Milbank and radical orthodoxy. Um, uh, as much as radical orthodoxy can be differentiated from Zizek and Badu and so on, I would actually contend that their um, habits of imagination uh, are, are more continuous than discontinuous. Yeah, um, so this is this is kind of connected to some of the work you did in your your first published book on diaspora, and I want to talk about that in just a second. Um, but first, I, I kind of want to take a step back, um, uh, say something else about Deleuze and something about Adorno, and see um, if you can maybe uh, go from there. Um, so, you know, we have we have um, this this Deleuze industry, which is sort of the happy hippie Deleuze, and then we have um, the, the naysayers of Deleuze, like Badu and Zizek and Hallward. Um, but then we also have this other trajectory um, of the, the accelerationist Deleuze. Um, and I'm kind of wondering, uh, in part because you've written some on on uh, for Sick about this, I'm kind of wondering if you think that the accelerationist Deleuze uh, is maybe also symptomatic of the same thing that Milbank, Badu, and Zizek are symptomatic of. And... Um, and if if there's if there's some kind of tools from Adorno that can can deactivate some of the the sort of um, those, deal with some of those symptoms that are in accelerationism, because I'm thinking in part of you know negative dialectics being about the wrong state of things, um, the, that's the way Adorno describes his project in negative dialectics, whereas like accelerationism seems to be all about looking at the shit that is the world, um, looking at just like kind of grinding, crushing power of capitalism, um, the, the, the sort of continuation of, of um, you know, the, the control society and saying, yeah, that's it. We want that and, and not recognizing it as the wrong state of things. Um, does that kind of accord with what your critique of accelerationism is? Um, well, first I have a question. This accelerationism... Um, I'm not quite sure I know a lot about it. Is there anywhere I can find out about it, like on the internet or something? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, um, no, I mean, accelerationism, yeah. I mean, I mean, jokes aside, I mean, there's something to that joke, which is that I, I'm not sure that I completely understand it entirely. Um, uh, I mean, I've, I've read the manifesto. I've read a lot of the stuff. Um, but there does seem to be a lot going on. You know, I'm, I'm friends with Nick, uh, one of the, one of the guys who wrote the manifesto, 
and um, you know I, I do respect him a lot as as a as a friend. Um, I don't think we agree on anything intellectually, but uh, he w- he was making a joke, or he was kind of he was taken aback by all the debate that that manifesto caused, um, saying that he had just written it with. Um, um, Alex Williams for like an in-house publication, and I was I, I was kind of surprised because it, it's called a manifesto. You know, it's not like a memo. Um, <laughs> it's just supposed to be circulated amongst friends. It's just it it seems like it should be the encapsulation of a thing. But but I, I too am a little bit confused about what it's what it's uh, advocating for because you know we have sort of the Nick Land of the '90s, which they're kind of in the spirit of, and now we have the Nick Land of twenty. 14 who's hanging out with all these racist libertarians um and uh, you know they, i think they're trying to kind of distance themselves from that while also um maybe still kind of falling prey to some of the same things that brought nick land to that point i'm not entirely sure yeah i mean i think i mean i guess what i would say i mean i i it seems to me, and this is a very probably like a very stupid observation, which is what I'm trying to trying to get. At. I'm not quite sure that I understand it so well, but at least in my reading, oftentimes it seems like uh, the value of accelerationism depends on an identification of, let's say, anti-capitalist projects as as either some kind of organic notion of we have something to hold on to or we have to be accelerationists. Um, I mean, I'm talking here about the sort of, let's say, the metaphorics of this. Um, right. Uh, in, in other words, what I'm saying is there's. Uh, it seems to me that accelerationism in order to present itself as a kind of valuable Marxist or neo-Marxist project depends on an account of all other Marxist tendencies as being a kind of, uh, I don't know, of a kind of organic socialism of the kind of, you know, alternative utopian communities or something. Right. Um, romantic and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, but, you know, having said that, I mean, I, I, I would like to make that comment sort of separate from what does bother me about it, uh, because, I, because I'm not so sure that I'm getting it in the comment I just made, but this comment that I am making, I, I, I do stand by completely, um, which is that there's um, a, a soteriological narrative um, at stake in accelerationism. That, to me, seems um, inescapable. Um, and by a soteriological narrative, um, let's, I, I'm referring to Christianity, um, and the, and the, the way that redemption is figured in terms of a present sacrifice or destruction that all the more is taken as proof of a future resurrection or uh, eschaton. Um, But I think you can see this uh, soteriological narrative also in the developmentalism of modernity. And here I think it's even more explicit in accelerationism. Um, I mean, modernity, for me, 
and I'm not alone in this, um, modernity for me is not something that happened round about the same time as colonialism, round about the same time mm -hmm. as a heavy racialization of the human, round about the same time as so on and so on and so on. Right. I mean, on the contrary, modernity is those things, and those things are modernity, on my reading. Um, and I'm not alone in this. In fact, there's many who make this claim. Now, the problem that I, that I would pose to the accelerationists, or at least the Accelerate Manifesto, is at the very least you've got to deal with that. In other words, there's a kind of economism, um, uh, and maybe this is endemic to Marxism, I don't know. But there's a kind of economism going on in them by which I, I mean that all they consider is the relationship between modernity and capitalism. Mm -hmm. So on some level, they're trying to sort of admit that modernity cannot be easily disentangled from capitalism, but that also somehow modernity can be turned against capitalism via acceleration or whatever. But however exactly they would put that, here's my point. Modernity is colonialism, is racialization, is etc., etc. Now, are you happy to say that what we need to do is sort of affirm that or accelerate that? Um, or at the very least, what do you do with those people who would say, well, fuck modernity, because modernity is all that stuff? Um, so I, 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 don't, I don't really understand completely what their position is on this. And, and this is particularly the case... Um, insofar as it seems to me that some of the rhetoric uh, that they do, I, if I remember correctly, in the Accelerate Manifesto, there's even um, some specific uh, references to a 19th century project, 19th yeah, yeah. century project of, of modernity yeah. and of the human and the post-human. And again, the 19th century, what, what, I mean, what was a really big, modern project that was going on in the 19th century, of course, we're talking about um, very intensified colonial expansion. Mm -hmm. I just don't think that that can be separated from what they're talking about. Now, I mean, we can have a discussion about what you do with that racializing legacy, but the point is that they're not even having that discussion. Right, right. Um, well, I mean, some of this is coming out of um, Ray Brassier's work, uh, you know, and, and his sort of valorization of the Enlightenment and this uh, uh, being all about um, deracination, you know, ripping ripping people out from the roots um, might be one way of thinking of that. I know deracination can have kind yeah. of uh, positive senses, but there is a certain sense of, of affirming the, the colonial experience in that way, saying that what you know, um, it's very it's it's very Christian. Uh, this horrible. Um, Christian theologian uh, named John Piper was talking about the uh, talking about the Odyssey, and he was talking about the Boxing Day um, tsunami back in 2005, and said, you know, this this 250,000 people, um, if one person comes to Christ, then then their their life, uh, th then them losing their life was worth it, and and to me that sounds a lot like um, uh, the rhetoric around enlightenment and deracination where you know if if you know millions of africans are pulled out uh, from their roots if millions of africans are uh, their bodies are destroyed it's worth it if we get enlightened if we if we're we're tearing those people um, and putting them in a universal plane um, and that kind of salvation happens um, for uh, 
uh, through deracination. And it's, it's, it is a very Christian logic, I think. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, I, I agree with that. And I also want to add to this because I just uh, looked it up because of the Internet. And, <laughs> um, and I just looked up uh, if I can read something from the manifesto that I, that I was particularly focused on, right, um, mm-hmm. is uh, uh, the movement towards surpassing of our current constraint must include um, recovering the dreams which transfixed many from the middle of the 19th century until the dawn of the neoliberal era. So, I mean, I think one can really ask, what are these dreams? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, what is the racination of these dreams? Uh, and uh, also, if I can, uh, another one, which I think is particularly problematic, um, you know, towards a completion of the Enlightenment project of self-criticism and self-mastery rather than its elimination, all right, but, but particularly the choice, this is near the conclusion of the manifesto, it's not quite the last line, but the choice facing us is severe. Um, uh, we're back to the fork in the road, I guess. Uh, but the choice facing us is severe, this is all a quotation, either a globalized post-capitalism or a slow fragmentation towards primitivism. Now, as we know, primitivism is a loaded word and also happened to be mm-hmm. one that was really important in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, in anthropologies and colonial discourses and so on. And I'm, and I'm not, um, my, my point very simply is that this sounds like a racializing, developmentalizing project. And in this sense, I'm not, I don't want to get too heavy handed, but I don't think that the whole, um, uh, and this, this will probably upset people, but I'm sorry, I think there's something to this. The whole Nick Land race, race thing, racism thing that's, that I've read, um, the fact that he's sort of a, a, if we can say, patriarch of accelerationism, and that ultimately he ends up in this sort of race thing. Um, well, I mean, to me, I'm not saying there's a causal relationship, but there's certainly a resonance there. It's mm-hmm. not something, I, I don't think one has to sort of sit there and scratch their heads and say, how in the world could Nick Land, who, you know, advocates this kind of accelerationism, which is a fundamentally developmental logic, how in the world could he end up becoming a racist? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I mean, on the contrary, it's, I'm not saying one, one entails the other, but it's, it's not surprising. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I agree with you. Well, let, changing gears a little bit, because um, um, I do want to talk a little bit more about, about your work. Uh, uh, some of the published work. So, you know, in, in, in your other book on Diaspora, which that came out in 2011? Yeah, yeah, like yeah. the very end, November 2011, yeah. In that book, you are engaging with the field of kind of post-secular studies. Um, and I, I, think, I think you're advancing a really original thesis there. Um, but you're building off of some people like uh, uh, Gil Andahar and, and Talal Asad um, as well. With that book, um, you're kind of making an argument that the air we breathe is is just Christianity in a certain sense, um, and and in some way the the secular, which some secularists will see as as very d- distinct from Christianity, um, isn't so distinct. Now I don't want to confuse the thesis because I, I think it's nuanced and um, it it can be very easy to confuse it with uh, an argument saying that Christianity and the secular are the same thing, and you are not making that claim, right? Right, that's correct, yeah. Okay, so uh, can you say a little bit about the claim you are making with regard to Christianity and the secular in, in that text? Um, 
Well, I mean, let's say the at the very at the very least, there's a genealogical relationship um, between the let's say the emergence of the secular and or the secular modern, if you will, and the um, emergence of Christianity, um, or or more more precisely, let's say that the emergence of the secular is a solution. Um, to a problem of Christianity and that Christianity is the solution to a problem of how to how to deal with difference and community. Um, I'll, I'll expand on that in a second, but what I just want to sort of say that um, I take, and my argument there is that there are lots of discontinuities, therefore, between these um, different, uh, I don't know what you want to call them, epistemes or apparatuses or whatever, epistemological habits. Um, uh, but um, certain problems tend to be repeated. Um, in other words, there's a kind of doubling down on the problematics um, rather than a, a stepping out or a dissolving of these problematics. So in this sense, the, what you have with the emergence of the secular modern will change the position of religion, and it will change the position of Christianity. Um, and this is a response to a Christian regime, and it's a change of that Christian regime. But it's a change that continues to repeat some of the most essential uh, difficulties or limits or violences of the Christian regime. Um, so in that sense, let's say the ethical or political problematic, there's a certain degree of continuity, um, even as there's a, a discontinuity genealogically narrated between these regimes. Um, so um, I don't know if I'm explaining myself so well. Um, but let's but let's say that um, let's say that Christianity. I mean, what I what I contend in the that book is that um, Christianity is uh, invented um, and religion is invented in in the sense that we understand it today um, at the same time. And, um, and the reason for that is, is very simply this, that early Christianity, I don't know if we can use that word because it's a bit anachronistic to call it Christianity before it's Christianity, but early Christianity, let's say a Pauline problematic, was simply what do you do with the fact that you have all these people who belong, to, who are differentiated at the level of Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile, et cetera, et cetera, you can multiply the differentiations. How do you think the how do you think the commonality of all of these um, differently marked identities? Mm -hmm. Now, I mean, I, I would propose that diaspora would be a way of doing this without having to create a transcendental commonality. But my point is that already in Paul, and certainly by the establishment of Christian orthodoxy and all of its discourses of heresy and its discourses of uh, sort of interpolating its others as religions that can't be the true religion. 
all of these discourses are in service of the constitution of Christianity as a commonality that would transcend the differences that are endemic to what is gathered by it. Um, so Jew, Greek, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How do you think the commonality of all these things? Well, I mean, basically you need the category of religion. You say, what sort of thing is this Christianity that everybody is together in? Well, you have to invent a new category called religion uh, that would be that thing. So Christianity invents religion as a category so that it can fulfill a category, so it can have a category to identify itself. So in this sense, both Christianity, Christianity and religion are marked sort of from the beginning by an attempt to think a point of transcendence that would be, uh, let's see, unaffected by the differences that are constantly encountering one another. And, I mean, this is a very long and more complex story than I'm, than I'm telling it here, but um, I would well, argue... That's what, they can go read the book for that. But yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, go on, go on. But, um, but that, uh, that the secular modern is an attempt to sort of switch it around. Instead of saying that every... Instead of saying that all identities are fundamentally religions and Christianity is the true religion, so it, it, Christianity is the thing that matches the thing called religion ideally, and all other things are religions that don't live up to that, um, what you have with a secular modern is an attempt to sort of, on some level, position the problem not as other religions, but to position the problem as religion as such, including Christianity, although Christianity always gets a free pass still. But um, the problem is now, it's not Christianity versus other religions, it's the secular versus all other religions. And the kind of um, enactment, and what was enacted by Christianity previously um, as a sort of universal transcendental condition of belonging is reenacted, although in a different way, but reenacted by the secular as a universal condition of uh, transcendental belonging. Um, and now we're told that religion is the problem. Uh, so to me, what I'm trying to do in that book is sort of track a lot of these discourses and, um, you know, and try to think of how one might stop participating in the habits uh, engendered by these discourses. I think at one point in time you referred to your project as a kind of anti-Christianity. Am I remembering correctly? I mean, you may have, and I may have liked it. <laughs> I mean, oh, okay. I, yeah. Okay. I mean, no. I, I think um, no, I think that's right. I mean, yeah. Let's but, go. Now, with when that. you say something like anti-Christianity, does that mean you're seeking to undermine it in the hope of replacing it with something else? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, uh, I wouldn't put it like that. Um, I'm, I mean, I'm not really sure. I mean, this, a lot of the work that I'm doing is trying to think through this question. So I'm, I'm still uh, uh, trying to figure out how to deal with the, the question that you ask. Um, but let's say, at the very least, um, my, what I'm, how should I put this? 
I mean, the, what I want to insist on is the contemporary theoretical relevance of Christianity. Um, my, my, again, very bluntly put, my problem is that we have narratives according to which Christianity more or less belongs to some kind of epoch or the, the regimes of power and the epistemological habits named by Christianity belong to a certain epoch that has been left behind and superseded um, by the secular modern. Whereas I would point out that the secular, excuse me, that the logic of supersession mm -hmm. uh, here invoked by the secular modern is, is a logic that is a fundamentally Christian logic. So I wouldn't therefore want to say that the secular modern simply is Christian, and this is why I like the term conversion, but that a supersessionist logic of conversion is established through Christianity, and then that supersessionist logic of conversion is then turned against Christianity in service of the secular modern. Now what this does is this it makes us um, sort of you know forgive and forget, which is also a pretty Christian thing to do. To sort of forgive, to forgive and forget the past, um, and to act like it's in the past and that it's not contemporary because the way we divide up the names, because of the way we periodize. Um, habits of periodization, again, that are endemic to the Christian inventions. We can talk about the age of the so-called Old Testament, the age of, or the age of the Father, the age of the Son, the age of the Spirit, which is all in Hegel as well. In other words, yeah. these habits are continuing up to the present. So I suppose the first thing I want to do I mean, if I'm anti-Christian, it is, at the very least, in this minimal sense, to insist on the contemporary relevance, theoretical relevance of Christianity, the contemporary political relevance of Christianity, um, and to say that that's a bad thing. Because sometimes, you know, I meet people, and there's a whole trajectory of this thought uh, with someone like, you think of like Jean-Yves um, where they will insist the same thing. Uh, the sort of contemporary relevance of Christianity. Um, but they think it's a good thing. Um, right. uh, so for me, I'm anti-Christian in the sort of the dual insistence that we are still within a regime of power that is established by Christianity and is in some more continuous than discontinuous relationship to Christianity, and that that's a bad thing. Um, so in this sense, I want to talk about Christianity, and I want to talk about it as a huge political problem that's bad. Um, and in that sense, I'm anti-Christian. Um, okay, so in your, your new project, which is on conversion, um, are you extending this analysis? Are you, are you starting to engage? Um, and I know, I mean, one of the things I really like about your work, and, um, you know, not to be... Uh, what is not to be soppy as as Dan Whistler always says that I am, but one of the things I I admire about your work and kind of take as an inspiration is um, is the promiscuity that you mentioned before in terms of the sources you engage with. So you know, with, without looking to be respectable to philosophers by just focusing on Deleuze or Adorno, and without trying to be respectable to religious uh, studies people by looking just at historical surveys or without being respectable to theologians by being a theologian in a certain sense with with uh, uh, even giving lip service to Christianity like someone like Vatimo or Badu to a certain extent would do. Um, you just engage with lots of different material. Sometimes it's material that isn't respectable in an academic sense. So I'm thinking in part of uh, your engagement with Yoder 
even in a Christian context, is a very minority figure. Um, uh, and then also now your engagement with Malcolm X um, and some some of the uh, uh, um, you know Nation of Islam. Um, yeah. Some of his writings from that time. I'm curious if, if your new project uh, is extending that logic. Is it engaging with other religious discourses? I mean, Malcolm X, you know, as a as a Muslim and a particular kind of Muslim, um, it s- suggests that maybe you are, um, or is that just accidental? Yeah, I mean, what I'm doing right now is, uh, um, yeah, I mean, it is. It's an expansion of the kind of work that I've done in the previous two books, and you know. You know, and I feel better about the work that I'm doing now. I feel like it's more, um, I don't know, somehow like, I mean, when, when you, whenever you're thinking, whenever you're writing, especially in the academy, I think, or maybe everywhere, I mean, what we're dealing with are codes. And, and these codes are always many steps ahead of you. And when you write and you want to sort of say something and think that you have a position, uh, you know, it's tricky but lots because lots of times these codes have already, uh, I'm suddenly a little bit paranoid, but, um, uh, but these codes in certain ways have anticipated that position or accounted for that position. And, you know, so a lot of, a lot of uh, the task of writing and thinking, I think, is sort of not refusing the sort of offer to have a position in mm-hmm. this way, um, but really to try and think about... Um, how, what's going on with these codes and trying to think about how different codes work together. Um, and so one of the reasons that I'm working right now on this project of conversion is because I feel very comfortable that conversion as a, as let's say a concept or an idea, whatever you want to call it, um, as, as both a historical material archive, a set of uh, uh, regimes of power, epistemological habits, ideas, affects, and so on, um, when we're talking about conversion here, I, I feel um, quite uh, compelled by the idea that conversion could could help conceive the simultaneity of a lot of different codes, mm-hmm. a lot of different um, uh, codes that would seem to be distinct from one another, or but are not. So with the stuff that I did on uh, diasporic thought and genealogy of religion or the stuff that I've done on Deleuze or indifference and Adorno and all that kind of stuff, you know, it was like I was, I was dealing with one code um, or, or more than one code, actually. But still, I was kind of like, all right, I was in this area, then I was in this area. But like, I'm already like interested in both areas. But to think both areas, there's like a million other areas. Um, and this has to do with my own limits, you know. So uh, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to really, um, particularly because I'm not, uh, I mean, that's, that's like my material situation is a little different right now because I'm not, you know, adjuncting like double digit courses a year, but I, mm-hmm. I have a kind of comfortable situation. Uh, so I kind of am able to kind of do a little bit more transversal work and think these codes together. So conversion, what I'm doing here is totally bound up in the other stuff, but the scope of the codes are much broader, let's say. Mm -hmm. Um, So in this sense, you know, I mean, I have, uh, I mean, I have a lot of stuff. I mean, things that have always been of interest to me, but I've never quite known um, exactly how to, how to engage it more directly. But um, 
uh, queer theory has become, um, uh, in an explicit sense, really huge for the work that I'm doing. Um, mm. uh, a lot of, you know, Malcolm X uh, and his work has become really huge for the stuff that I'm doing. Um, I've been able to attune much more to kind of sociology and anthropology of religion and, you know, things that you're interested in as well, like La Ruelle, uh, Gnosticism, and Islam. Um, so, I mean, I'm really interested in the way, for instance, to take up your question about Malcolm X, is the way that Malcolm X insists on the, the simultaneity of anti-whiteness and anti-Christianity. Um, and so, therefore, uh, a kind of critique of white supremacy and its related colonization requires a critique of Christianity. And what's appealing about Islam is its capacity to perhaps articulate both of these at the same time. I mean, I find that really brilliant. Um, and I, and I learn, you know, I'm learning a ton from that and I'm trying to think from that. Um, and the way that that relates, um, when you, when you go back to, when you look at, uh, sort of historically the critique made by, um, Christianity, excuse me, made of Christianity by Islam, and you trace that back, and the Gnostic elements in the way, for instance, that Gnosticism and its critique of the being of the world relates to a lot of tendencies in Afro-pessimist thought that sort of began with nothingness. Um, I mean, so, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it sounds really interesting or like I'm a little, like the ravings of, uh, of a confused person. Um, but I mean, so I'm trying to think these things together in what I'm doing. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, uh, I want to kind of hear more about what's attracted you to, to the queer theory and to the Afro pessimism a little bit. Um, but I, one of the things that's striking about your work and the way you're, you're able to, to think these codes together, uh, not in a synthesis, but you're able to think multiple codes at once to use, to use your language there, um, is that it's not like a pastiche, you know, it's not, um, a list of things that you think are cool that you're, you're paying lip service to, but they, they become materials that, um, actually drive your own thinking. Um, and so I, again, I think it's a, it's a really excellent thing. So what, what's, what's attracted you to the queer theory? I mean, I, I know you're interested in, uh, Lee, is it Edelman or Edelman? I always yeah, Edelman, yeah, yeah, Edelman, D, yeah, Edelman. Um, so, what's attracted you to to his, to his work in particular in queer theory in general? Theoretically speaking, I think that um, there's a kind of negativity that's at that's at issue in a lot of uh, trajectories of queer theory. Whether you're talking about um, Edelman or Bersani, um or, you know, something like Sarah Ackman's, uh, you know, text on the promise of happiness or Berlant's cruel optimism. Um, and, you know, I mean, just to name some of these, some of these uh, things. Um, uh, you know, I mean, what's interesting to me is the kind of negativity there that is really intriguingly oriented towards, let's say, the object of negation, you know, what Hegelians would call the determinate negation, that the negativity here is, is enacted against a kind of futurity or a soteriology that I think is deeply Christian. Mm -hmm. So it's, I mean... I mean, if you think about Ahmed's talking about the promise of happiness... 
and queerness and other, I mean, I mean, there's other dimensions here uh, as well, but um, if you talk about a critique of happiness, it's hard not, I mean, you're talking about a critique of Augustinianism. Mm. Um, if you talk about, um, you know, Bersani's book, The Culture of Redemption, I mean, you're talking, well, where, what is the culture of redemption, you know, uh, that's being critiqued here? You talk about the child uh, with uh, Lee Edelman. I mean, I, I mean, you know, if Edelman says, listen, we have to be against all politics of futurity and all politics of futurity are based on the child. Um, well, I mean, let's see. Can we think of any sort of regime of thought that located the futurity with a child to come. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, I mean, this is, I mean, if for, for whatever reason, I, I, I don't know to what, what the causality is, but I'm struck by the way that um, kind of, you know, what we talked about just now as my anti-Christianity is being enacted in, in a lot of uh, aspects of queer theory. Um, and, you know, I'm really uh, trying to learn from that. And you know, make what I'm doing uh, better uh, than what it is through that. So that's kind of my interest in that, for instance. I see. I see. Uh, and the Afro pessimism. Um, so for for listeners who who don't who aren't familiar with this, um, uh, Jared Sexton and Frank B. Wilderson the uh, third are two of the figures you introduced me to. There. Um, what, what's attracting you to Afro pessimism? Kind of the same thing, or is it? Are they distinct from queer theory? I mean, I mean, again, I mean, it's one of those things where it's distinct in terms of codes often ways, but not, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, oh, okay, if, if you think of a lot of the Afro-pessimistic, uh, Afro-pessimist work, um, in addition through the names you mentioned, but also if you look at uh, people like Kara Keeling or Hortense Spillers or... Um, uh, Saidia Hartman, you know, you start to see ways in which um, analysis, the analysis being advanced by Afro-pessimism are uh, deeply caught up in problematizing the kind of assumptions that work in a lot of gender studies. Um, and these, uh, maybe that's not quite the right way to put it, but um, in other words, what, what queerness is trying to do in terms of a radicalization of critique in the field of gender um, really links up to a lot of the radicalizations of, of uh, questions of racialization. Um, when, I mean, that becomes really apparent when you look at someone like Hortense Spillers, who, you know, will suggest, for instance, that, um, uh, I mean, one can read her work as suggesting that gender does not really even apply to uh, the flesh. Um, uh, of the slave woman and so on. So, I mean, so there's, there's connections here and there's ways to sort of work via adjacencies. But I think, again, what, uh, what compels me uh, by this, amongst other things, is, the, um, is really an attempt to... How to put this? Um, the, again, the kind of anti-futurist or anti-redemptive quality of Afro-pessimism, I think, is what you, you could sort of see as a common predicate with what I just said about uh, queer theory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I should say, too, that one of the things that I uh, learned 
from astral pessimism is that when it comes to conversion, conversion is always conversion to whiteness. The process of conversion is a process of religion, but it's also a process of racialization. And so Afro-pessimism really uh, powerfully and brilliantly insists on the incommensurability between blackness or whiteness, an incommensurability produced by whiteness, and it's produced as a result of and through and continues to be produced through a project of conversion, a project of uh, overcoming this incommensurability. But it's precisely uh, refusing to overcome this incommensurability, refusing to believe in the promise of conversion to produce a future that will have overcome this incommensurability. It's precisely these points that Afro-pessimism, I think, really insists upon. And, you know, I find that incredibly compelling. And I take as well uh, an issue of temporality, the way that this shifts the emphasis from the future, the future that's always promised to repair uh, the damage of the present, to shift that emphasis from the future to the present, to the now. And a now that is configured precisely by the whole archive of incommensurabilities that are in fact now, that are in fact uh, continually producing and configuring the now. Conversion wants to turn away from this configuration. Conversion wants the now never to happen. It wants to focus on the future. Uh, but in focusing on the future, it's essentially forgetting the incommensurability of the present and forgetting essentially blackness. And so Afro-pessimism, it's, it's pessimism as I understand it, um, is oriented precisely towards this future, precisely towards this overcoming. And it insists on the reality of this incommensurability, which is not simply a pessimism, but also an affirmation of a certain kind of power to, to live and to have a sociality um, without the promise of redemption. So I, I think, you know, one of the, I don't even know if it would be a criticism, but a, a listener, uh, someone talking with you, hearing all this, uh, reading some of their work, um, one of the things I, I can imagine them being is horrified, and they, they might come back at you saying, well, are we just supposed to be hopeless? Are we completely fucked? Is that, is that just it? Um, what would your response to, to that kind of question or, or demand be? You mean with a kind of uh, sort of anti-futurist yeah, attitude yeah. that I'm talking about here? Um, it's, I don't see what I'm trying to do here as somehow being a spokesman for something or, or representing, um, uh, I don't know, people mm -hmm. or an audience in this way. Uh, in other words, it, I'm not trying to say, to adjudicate between the options of having hope for the future or not having hope for the future. What, what I see what I'm doing is I'm trying to talk or analyze, to really analyze, analysis, or study. Let's just say, I think these would be good words for this. Um, what I'm talking about, what I'm trying to do here is just study or analysis of what I think is there. I mean, uh, you know, 
I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, I guess I'm a realist in this way. What I'm talking about, what I'm trying to name here as conversion or whatever, what I'm, I'm saying it's there. Um, and so it's not as if I, I, I don't really see my work as somehow responding to some generically understood uh, set of options. Um, I see myself as sort of trying to understand the configuration of, I don't know what you want to say, of the present or the configuration of what's there. That's what a conversion is for me. Um, and frankly, if you want to have liberation or a politics of something different, um, you need to understand what's there. Um, anything else is just a fantasy. Uh, so, and again, understand, I, 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 nor do I understand what I'm doing is somehow being, a, a, I don't know, some, giving some message of doom and gloom or something like this. I'm, I'm simply just trying to say, like, hey, this is there. I'm not even really trying to tell people, hey, this is there. I'm just trying to understand for myself. It seems like something is there, and I'm trying to study it. And, you know, I'm talking about my study of it. But, I mean, it's, it's you know, uh, far be it from me to you know, uh, stand in for those kinds of hopes and far be it from others to, uh, I don't know, look, you know, look to me for that. Um, I'm just trying to talk about what's there. I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed talking with Dan. If I can get a little vulnerable with you, his work makes me want to think. And I think that's something that's very special and rare uh, in the world of theory today. All right, as always, you can keep the conversation going at the Tumblr site by leaving a comment. Uh, this is going up on May the 12th. Um, on Thursday, the 15th, I will be speaking at DePaul University. There's going to be a little symposium on my recent book, A Non-Philosophical Theory of Nature, Ecologies of Thought, which came out with Palgrave uh, in 2013. If any of you are going to be in Chicago, please get in touch with me and I can send you the info for that symposium. Hoping to have a few conversations while I'm out in Chicago, so hopefully in future episodes you'll hear from Liam Heenahan and maybe I can get Adam Kotzko to come on and talk with me. All right, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Daniel Coluciello Barber and remember, whatever the week brings you, your name is your name.